0: This week I spoke with Sarah Kelly, a sports journalist who was laid off last year um, by the Washington Post from her job at the Express, which was this fascinating sort of free local newspaper that they handed out to commuters and to other people that oftentimes could not get access to their, their regular newspaper. Uh, Sarah is a great young journalist. She has been laid off multiple times and has had an experience that is un- unfortunately very, very common for young reporters in this, this day and age, and uh, I think that she had some really good. insights. Um, And as we are uh, in the middle or the end, I guess now, of uh, Women's History Month, I would just like to give a quick shout out to a woman who has been a hugely influential part of of my career, um, Tina Sussman, who was my editor until I was laid off at Buzzfeed. Tina is one of the baddest ass reporters and editors that I've ever known. Um, It was always amazing that uh, no matter how harebrained of a story idea I came up with, she had already written something like it at some point in her career or had been there or knew the people I was going to go talk to beforehand anyway, Um, and she taught me more uh, in the couple of short years that I had the the, uh, honor to be edited by her about journalism than I'd learned in many, many years before that, Um, and she's just a great, awesome journalist and uh, editor and an amazing human being, so anyway, uh, I'm John Stanton, and this is The 30, the end of the news. Well, Sarah, thank you very much for joining me um, on The 30.
1: I'm glad to be here.
0: So why don't you tell um, the listeners a little bit about yourself and your history uh, in, uh, in journalism?
1: Um, so I'm a journalist right now in uh, Washington, D.C., and my career has been mostly local and primarily in smaller markets. Um, most recently, I was with uh, Washington Post Express. I actually moved out here from Kansas City for that job last April before it shut down in September um, and before that I had done some stints in um, Iowa and in Texas
0: and um, you've gone through quite a bit of the the, the ringer frankly of the, uh, of, of the of the ups and downs in the industry right
1: um absolutely uh, I have been laid off five times in six years um <laughs> Two of those were actually not um, journalism jobs. They were marketing jobs that I took because I couldn't find journalism jobs. Um, But marketing isn't really that much more stable either. Uh, And one was a part-time job, but that still totals five layoffs in six years.
0: And that's, I mean, you know, for me, that's, um, you know, I've been doing this now over 20 years and I've known lots of people that have been laid off, but it seems like it's kind of a, a, it feels to me like a new phenomenon to be, to have had it happen so many times, particularly um, you know, at, such a, at such a young age.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's been basically the beginning of my career. I, I graduated, um, I started working basically in 2011. So it wasn't a great time to be in journalism anyway, and I managed to go a few years without my first layoff, but it just has kind of snowballed from there and um, has, has really made it very hard to build the resume that I'd like to have.
0: And you've been looking for, for full-time work since then, right?
1: Yes. I've been doing some freelance things and, and looking for um, full-time, probably on-staff kind of positions.
0: And that's been tough, honestly, right?
1: Yeah, it's just, it's competitive. Um, I don't have too much trouble finding some interest, but then I have to explain why I have so many short stints on my resume. And um, I think at a certain point, even if they're all good reasons, it's just like a lot of short short, you know, stints. And, um, you know I also don't really trust any of these people to not hire me and then immediately lay me off either. so <laughs> it's it's been just kind of an ongoing challenge and I think I'll find something I'm feeling better about it lately but um, there are a lot of people looking for this kind of work and um, particularly in sports which is is what I would love to stay in and so it, it's been competitive.
0: You know I think, I think one of the things about your story that was particularly, um, jarring, honestly, um, and it's something that I've seen in some other other reporters. But you know, you got hired like you said in April, and then just a few months later, um, you know, you ended up getting getting laid off, which I think really points to the to the volatility um, and the and the uncertainty of of the industry. And you know, I'm I'm curious sort of how that what that feels like and, and what that means means for you as a as a, as a reporter and just as a person.
1: Yeah, honestly, I was kind of devastated because I had, you know, started to build an okay life for myself in Kansas City, and this opportunity came around, and I I made a lot of sacrifices to be able to take it, um, particularly with the thinking of, it's the Washington Post, like, that's one of the most stable newspapers there is, and I mean, that is actually still pretty much true, um, you know, but I, it really... I wouldn't have made that change for most newspapers. And I really didn't need that, you know, I wasn't looking for work. I had a perfectly good job that paid me enough money in Kansas City, which is where I'm from, and everything was fine. And I I gave up all of that. I spent every dime I had, I maxed out all my credit cards so I could move a thousand miles from everyone I know. And then five months later, that job just doesn't exist. And and so that was that was personally really tough. And also, I, like you said, I think really points to um, the volatility that I, you know, I can't say for sure what higher ups were thinking or what their plans were, but it it seems interesting that they would um, hire somebody with relocation five months before shutting down. So, I mean, maybe they're, they really just don't care about people at all. And maybe they made that decision very quickly. I think it's probably the latter, but I really don't know. Um, And either way, it it just, it doesn't, it doesn't make the industry look good. It doesn't make me feel secure in really anything about journalism right now.
0: Let's, let's talk a little bit about the Express, because it, it, I always thought that it was um, um, kind of a unique uh, newspaper, honestly, that it was this, um, it was basically like it was designed for kind of for commuters and for people that didn't necessarily have uh, the means to, to buy the, the post, right?
1: Yeah, that's right. Um, there are maybe a couple of markets that had something similar, like Chicago's Red Eye, I think Boston had something, um, but it is, yeah, it is um unique and uh, it was very, yeah, it was very transit focused. The idea was you were on probably the Metro and you'd read that, you know, on your commute to work. Um, And I think, as it was explained to me anyway, the business goal really was to reach audiences that we weren't reaching other ways. Uh, These were, I'm sure there was some overlap with post subscribers, but it was mostly people who, you know, wouldn't be picking up a paper version, wouldn't be regularly logging on to read post stories. Um, and so that was kind of our purpose and that's that's why it was sold to me is like this is ad supported. this still works like this is why this like print first business model works, even though that is outdated in most ways was just that specific function. Mm-hmm. Um, we also heard a lot of uh, you know uh, homeless people and other people that like you like you mentioned don't really have a lot of means who relied on that for, for local news, because you know it was free and it was also very readily available where they were out and about. Um, instead of having to maybe use their precious data on their phone or you know log in places like that, you know it was just around. And so that's how a lot of those people kept up with events in, in their area.
0: Mm-hmm. And um, what was the I guess the, the the reasoning that you guys were given for the for the layoffs in the end?
1: We were told that we had started losing money that year and that it had accelerated in the second half of the year, which is interesting because it was September. So um, I guess in like the third quarter is what they mean. I don't, I, yeah, I don't know. Um, but basically, yeah, it, the, the, the message was that it was not financially viable.
0: Mm-hmm. How, do you know how much of the, of, it was, of the funding was coming from like advertising in the, in the Express versus, you know, just sort of in general, the Washington Post media group funding?
1: Um, I honestly do not know. I was told we were ad-supported, but that's that's as much as I know about that.
0: Which I think is, that's, I, um, I think, a big problem, frankly, for, for all of us in the industry. I know that I never paid a whole lot of attention to how the money was coming in at BuzzFeed until I got laid off.
1: Well, and <laughs> right? it's not supposed to be your concern, is the whole thing. You know, that's, especially in those those older um, traditions where the separation of, of ads and And uh, news were very serious and usually a physical separation. And um, things have changed certainly since then. But it's not supposed to be your job to worry about the financial viability because your job is to do the news. And it's like you know, to me, it's kind of important that that you know journalists are not too focused on that funding. But also, you know, it, it makes it easy for you to have the rug pulled out from under you.
0: Yeah, and I think I mean. I feel like that that has been one of the biggest lessons that we as reporters have had to to start grappling with is that the, the traditional sort of separation of church and state um has served us well as an industry but I think as workers it is it has become this way to keep us in the dark from by management and that we need to start asking these questions right
1: Right I think it's worth asking the questions um and I think yeah that's a hard thing to accept that that you might need to change the way you do some things or that things might not be as good as you hoped, no matter how good your work is. that's really difficult for me to accept, but at at the very least, we need to be asking questions about, you know, is what we're doing viable?
0: Mm -hmm. So I'd like to see if you could talk a little bit about, um, you know, I guess the experience of, of, of being laid off. One of the things that, that I've talked with some of the other folks that have been on the show about is kind of, the, the mental toll of the layoffs and of you know um, the you know the sort of the financial tolls obviously but sort of like how it affects us and I think that especially for um, young women in the in the industry that that can potentially be particularly bad given that you know you're kind of dealing with a whole bunch of other issues to begin with I mean especially as a, as a sports, you know journalist you know full well the kind of vitriol that that you get and i'll tell you about that right and, right yeah um you know like what i mean you know did it did it have effects with like your mental health did it you know i mean what what was the effect of it
1: it actually it actually does affect um pretty, i mean my mental health a, a great deal um i you know i was already seeing a therapist but it has been identified as a source of, of trauma and my therapist actually took it you know, pretty seriously and was like this, especially, um, an ongoing pattern of this precarity is a form of, of trauma the same way that, you know, uh, ongoing precarity for poor children, you know, is a sense, is a a form of trauma and that, you know, it's something that you have to then, uh, deal with and heal just like any other bad thing that happens to you. And, uh, you know, at first that seemed a little extreme to me, but I think she's on to something, that uh, never being able to trust the ground beneath my feet um, it is just really stressful. I can't plan my life more than a month ahead of time. I never know, you know, if I can go home for the holidays. I never know if I'm going to have income next month. Um, you know, I don't know what, I genuinely do not know what city I will be living in six months from now.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and so to do that year after year is is really difficult. And I think, especially as a woman in journalism and as a woman in sports, Uh, I always feel like I've got a target on my back because I am always not even just because I'm a woman, but because I'm always the last one hired and Mm -hmm. always the first one out, you know, that that's a a really damaging way to handle layoffs. And it wasn't the case actually with express um, because they just laid off everybody. Although that did include a whole lot of, you know, relatively early and middle career women. Um, It, it, uh, that's the whole problem with, you know, just now getting into different kinds of diversity hiring is if you're, you know, laying off all of your newest hires and all of your newest hires are, you know, diverse journalists in one way or another, then you've just wiped out all of your diversity and you're just back to being run mostly by old white men. You haven't made any progress. And, you know, and in that that process I've also just really messed up the lives of people who maybe can't really afford to take another hit.
0: I think that's you know uh, this is, that's another theme that I've really hit on a lot uh, in the show, which is that you know over the last I would say maybe five or, or ten years we have seen I feel like um, especially in the Washington political press corps, but I think generally um, uh, a much greater amount of diversity. I don't think it's been nearly adequate enough, frankly, but I think that you within the industry we've seen this. I mean, whether it's sports or, or local news, um, politics, a lot more women, a lot more people of color. Um, trans people are starting to, to get more high-profile jobs, and then this, this layoff, uh, these layoffs come along, and it does, it just seems like wipe all of that, whatever progress we have made as an industry to better reflect society, it just wipes it all out.
1: Great. Right. Uh, you know, um, last time APSE did their survey, I think it was last year um, or the year before, they found that 90% of people with the title sports editor are men. <laughs> um, and so, you know, as a sports editor, it, it meant a lot to me to have that title to be one of just the 10% of them that, um, that are women that are, are making these decisions and you're never going to get, um, you know, in my case, women in sports, but in other cases, you know, different, different voices, different diverse hires um, to stick around if you can't get them into management and you can't get them into management if you're constantly laying them off.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and talk a little bit about, about why you think that, the, that having those different voices is important.
1: Because that's how you kind of account for all of the biases that come with the status quo. Um, You know, that's how you represent your audience better. That's how you see stories that you wouldn't otherwise see. Um, You know, if everything is run by people who have the same point of view, you're missing a lot of news. You're missing a lot of um, angles and you're missing a lot of impacts. And so for a long time, we've treated uh, that view as, you know, the least biased, the most... um, you know, neutral view, but it's not, it's a very specific point of view to be writing your news from the viewpoint of, you know, upper middle-class white men over the age of 40. That's a very, very specific view. Um, (laughs) And so the only way that you can counter that is, is by having um, different, different kinds of people in your newsroom.
0: And I mean, it is pretty remarkable that, you know, that, you were like a young a young woman as a as an editor, and that they especially in in sports that just doesn't ever happen it seems like
1: no and I mean this was kind of like um an interesting way into that position because I didn't really directly manage a lot of people um the way that most sports editors do, so it was kind of a half step um mm-hmm. where it's not quite management, but it's also not um it it's not just a copy desk, which is my original background would be in copy editing and sports copy editing um and so yeah, I mean, for me, that that was a big deal that it's, you know, it's it's the Express, but it's also the Washington Post. And it's, you know, a, an editor with no real staff, but it's still a, a sports editor. And there are, you know, fewer and fewer of those kind of really good half step opportunities out there. Um, looking for jobs, a lot of things that I've seen, you know, are, I'm just not qualified for because it's, you know, managing a staff of, of 10 people or something. And there isn't mm-hmm. a lot of middle ground between what I'm qualified to do now, and what I would be qualified to do in five years, and and so that's been a real challenge for me, um, trying to make my way in in sports editing and trying to stick around in this.
0: So I'm I'm curious, why did you get into into the sports journalism? Was it because you were just into sports, or or did you fall into it, or?
1: I really did kind of fall into it. Um, my parents are nerds and didn't really like sports growing up, so I got into that a little bit later. <laughs> Um, But I also went to the University of Kansas, which is, you know, a big sports school. Uh, And at that time, even we had a good football team. So, you know, it was a football and basketball school at the time, which is neat. So, so working at the student paper, I just wanted to be where, you know, the best journalism was and the most interesting things. And at, at that school, at that time, a lot of the really good stuff was coming out of um, the sports section. A lot of really talented people who are you know still in the business and still impressing people were doing really cool stuff and um, so I just kind of fell into this role as someone who can communicate and, and deal with that, I guess that uh, valley between news people who don't know anything about sports and sports people who don't take a lot of traditional news experience into their into their jobs and sort of mm-hmm. like... Be the go between there where I, you know, I would know from a copy editing standpoint, I would know the style of these things, or I would understand what this meant that um, That the other copy editors might not necessarily know. And then I would, you know, also be able to tell the sports writers like, hey, we need this to be better sourced or uh, This, you know, we can't say this because of this, or, you know, the right way to describe it would be this, these kinds of things like that, mm-hmm. um, particularly because KU didn't have like a sports writing class. So all of those kids were oh. just kids writing sports. Um, and so. So, yeah, I mean, that's, so that's been my role in, in several different um, areas is kind of being too newsy for sports and too sporty for news.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think, you know, again, I think that's a, a, a thing that has happened more and more as a result of having more diverse voices within the sports reporting world, right? I mean, there's this whole, um, you know, uh, kind of bullshit thing of stick to sports, right? Mm-hmm. Like whenever, whenever a woman who covers sports asks questions that are, you know, not um, gonna make the white guys at home happy. That's the, excuse me, that's the, the answer. If, you, if you're black and you ask a question they don't like, then it's to right. stick to sports. But I think that it's, it's been, I think, one of the more um, beneficial and positive and revolutionary things that has changed over the last decade, whereas that was very much a niche kind of a, of a phenomenon prior to that, that it's now become much more mainstream to, to view sports as just another part of our culture and a lens into our culture and our politics and everything else.
1: Right. I think it's really strengthened a lot of sports uh, sections, a lot of sports websites. Um, I think it's a great answer to, you know, the way that technology has changed and the gamer is not really as important as it used to be. And so what are you going to run? Like, what are you going to tell people that they don't already know? because they just already watched that game or they already know what happened. Um, the way all of this, the results come in instantly, um, what else are you going to cover? And uh, there are a lot of great answers to that. And and some answers to that are a lot of, uh, especially longtime sports writers are, are borderline scouts. Um, you know, it can tell you all kinds of things about um, the play itself, you know, the way that the game is played, the the people who are hired, all of those kinds of things that are, are very nitty gritty about the sport. And that's awesome. And it's also not something that I'm really qualified to do. Um, but when you bring in all these other diverse voices, um, you see all of these other stories that nobody else saw. And that's where we're seeing a lot of response. That's where, um, you know, you see coverage, for example, of women's sports or of HBCUs and that unique culture and and things like that, that, that the, you know, old timers didn't necessarily see. That's how you reach new audiences. That's how you bridge that gap between, um, you know, casual fans and people who actually read the sports section every day since they were, you know, old enough to read. Yeah, and so I, feel, I think that has really been a, a major benefit to a lot of newsrooms, and it maybe doesn't get the credit it deserves.
0: Yeah, I totally agree, and I think it also gives you know every reader um, a more full uh, picture of what's going on, right? And, and you know, you care about this this sport. Um, these are all real parts of it, you know, like the the, the cultural and, and and political pressures that are that are buffeting you know football or baseball or soccer or whatever, you know, like you can't understand those the game and the players and the teams and how they interact with each other and all that without understanding all the other forces that are at work there and then how they in turn impact our culture.
1: Exactly, yeah. And I think it gets us talking about a lot of things we wouldn't otherwise be talking about. Um, coronavirus is actually a great example. Uh, some of the the best coronavirus coverage I've seen has been you know, just on ESPN and you know, Max Kellerman saying, you know, explaining to people like, this is the reason that we're canceling these things. Isn't because the athletes might get sick. It's because we might infect everyone else. And he's talking about, you know, flattening the curve. And, and I think um, that is probably the first time a lot of folks had heard any of these discussions. Mm -hmm. And it's a way to reach people um, who aren't necessarily reading the other section. I've um, kind of had to explain that sometimes to hard news people who, who were never into sports is that a, a huge section of the population only reads the sports section. Um, and so to to use that lens of sports as, as part of our society is is great for everyone because it brings up a lot of stuff that otherwise people wouldn't be seeing or reading.
0: Yeah, I, you know, it's funny, like I've, I've been thinking a little bit about this, this question that, that you just were talking about, about how how much of the information that your average American are they getting from ESPN on coronavirus? And I, I, I think you're right. I think I suspect probably a huge number of Americans, you know, knew maybe the coronavirus was happening, but once it's on ESPN, once, you know, the, 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 the tournament is canceled, that's when it becomes real for a lot of people.
1: Right. Yeah. And, and I, they did a, It maybe seems rude to seem surprised, but they did like a a surprisingly um, good job of really explaining like why this is necessary. And um, I I kind of would have worried that they only, you know, talked about how that affected the athletes, but they did a really good job of explaining um, why this matters and why we need to respond to a pandemic in this way. Um, The other example I can think of ESPN doing a really great job was during uh, the Boston Marathon bombing, Um, you know, and Bob Lake comes up there and he's, you know, a pro and that was an excellent source of information. Um, I think I was like in a waiting room or something at that point. And so I saw like most of what ESPN did to cover it. And I think that um, it's important for people in sports to take themselves seriously as journalists and not just as entertainers. and, And that's kind of why.
0: Now, uh, there obviously, there has been a very major backlash to this, especially um, for women in, in uh, s- sports journalism. Um, can you talk a little bit about about that and your experience with that and the, and the challenges of that?
1: Um, so I'm, compared to a lot of people, I'm lucky. Um, for example, I'm not on television. So there are a whole lot fewer people who notice that I'm around and notice that I'm a potential target. Um, so I have it a lot easier than a lot of people. A lot of women in this business, uh, but I still get some of that, and it's just a, a general belief that you don't know what you're talking about because you're a girl. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also a lot of really subtle things, like um, male reporters will talk over me or you know box me out when I'm you know trying to to get an interview or trying to ask a question, things like that. Um, I get a little bit of that here and there. Uh, I it, it's just um, I think just a backlash of people who have always been in charge and run the world and and feel like particularly sports is somehow theirs and not everybody's. And they feel like um, women and uh, to a different extent, you know, um, people of color are, are kind of invaders taking over something that belongs to them. And, and I guess that's where my problem is, is that sports doesn't belong to you. It belongs to everybody and you don't have any right to claim it. And I'm not taking up your space. You have just been taking up my space for generations. <laughs> Yeah. I'm just taking back what you hadn't ceded to me that you needed to give me. Um, and so that's kind of how I look at things. Um, I really have, uh, I, I cannot recommend strongly enough um, the filter features for your mentions on Twitter. Um, I generally don't see things from people who don't follow me. And that makes all the difference in the world. And I can just keep going about my day. But, uh, you know, I, I do sometimes get some backlash from that, from people who who feel like, Um, just the mere presence of women in sports is um, a threat to something that is important to them. And and it's hard to understand exactly what other than just the status quo that they just find it threatening. And that's not my problem.
0: (laughs) No, it is definitely not your problem.
1: (laughs) Try not to make it my problem.
0: (laughs) (laughs) No, one of the things we talk a lot about on the show is, is the effect that, you know, Google and Facebook and their ad um, revenue, um, sort of uh, mining and uh, has had on the industry. And I know that, that you know, obviously the express is a, is a bit of a different beast because of it was, you know, like a print publication. So obviously Google and Facebook are not um, taking ad revenue <clears throat> directly away from them uh, in the same way that they are for other sites. But I'm curious to know if, you, if what you, what your thoughts are on how, you know, the the potential dangers of these big tech companies that are kind of acting like publishers, and, but but kind of not, and, and sort of taking huge amounts of the, the ad revenue away from, from our employers, our potential employers, and what that effect does, and if that concerns you, or? Uh,
1: yeah, I mean, it's a huge existential threat. I, I did work for a while for SB Nation, and I worked for a Gannett site um, out in Iowa. So, you know, those publishers, well, those websites acting as publishers have, you know, been a, an existential threat for a long time, and it's it's getting worse, Um but the biggest the problem that I see with that is that if you go into journalism or media um, with the purpose of getting rich, you're never going to be able to, to fulfill the real duty of it, which is to inform the citizenry and, you know, and, and question the government and be that balance um, to power. If you are the most powerful corporation in the world, you can't hold power accountable. Um, And so that's, to me, the biggest issue with Facebook and Google um, taking over this kind of stuff is that they, they inherently are not qualified to handle it. Um, And also, they keep, you know, forcing these places to lay off my friends and that sucks.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it really does.
1: (laughs) Sucks so much.
0: So uh, this is uh, you know we're in, this is um, Women's History Month the, the one month a year we, we as all oh, right a culture remember that women exist
1: <laughs> we do we do roughly fifty percent of of the population hanging right. out uh,
0: are there any are there any women um, in journalism that uh, that you look at as as sort of um, models or or people that you've looked up to and, and uh, admired
1: there's actually so many um, you know like. Doris Burke is, is the, you know, end all be all. I think for a lot of women in sports journalism, especially, um, is, you know, just the most professional, the most knowledgeable, um, could go on and on. And so I thought, I've, I've thought it was, you know, for a long time thought maybe I was just one of a handful of people who thought that. And I don't know if you've seen recently, but Katie Nolan's show has done a few things where they, you know, they're in this like sports girl cult or something and, mm-hmm. and they're like praise be to Doris and, and things like that. And uh, you know, it's, there's kind of like a cult of, of Doris Burke followers. So it <laughs> like it's been a, a big thing for um, a lot of female journalists. Um, also highly recommend Katie Nolan's show. Um, it's on late Thursday nights. It's really good.
0: Um, for, 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 our, for our listeners who don't know who Doris is, can you, can you talk a little bit about her real quick?
1: You know, Doris Burke is with ESPN, and a lot of her coverage is um, is basketball and NBA related. And she's just been around forever, and she's just the best in the game. Mm-hmm. Um, li- literally every time she says something, I'm like, wow, that's the smartest thing I've ever heard anyone say about basketball. And it's just everything she says, every word out of her mouth. Um, even on TV, even, you know, off the cuff. Uh, so I'm not in broadcast. I probably won't ever be that, but I, I really like to keep an eye on, on what she's up to. And it, apparently she's a big deal with uh, women in, in sports journalism right now.
0: When you were, when you were in school, actually, I, I did not go to journalism school, but I'm curious when, when you were in school, did they actually ever talk about women journalists Were they taught at all or, or, or their, their work used or studied, or was it primarily just a bunch of old white guys?
1: It was mostly old white guys. Um, You know, there were always a few um, here and there, uh, but never any kind of differentiation. I don't remember any programs specifically for women or for female students. We didn't have a chapter of Awesome. I don't know if they do now, but we didn't at the time. Um, What is Awesome? Awesome is the um, Association for Women in Sports Media. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's kind of the, uh, that's our, you know, umbrella organization that's for, it's, Media in general. So some people work for the team, some people work in marketing, but some of us are, you know, journalists and, and uh, that's, that's where, um, you know, there's a lot of support and things like that. That didn't, um, they have college chapters. They didn't have one at my school. They didn't have um, They didn't have a sports writing course either. There was like a, a course about sports in general, almost as a business. And I took that and we Only really talked about women in the, in the context of Title Nine and how that would screw up paying the athletes, I think, was the message of that class. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, revenue sports and non-revenue sports and things like that. Um, but no, it was definitely never pulled out. It was um, just always the greats. And the greats did usually end up being um, white men. Well, predictably. Yeah. We had, well, we had, like, several, like, you know, very very good and respected, you know, female professors who had been, you know, really good in journalism, but um, there was, I I would say zero effort to um, include, you know, to, to include any more women than whatever came naturally.
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, so we find ourselves in the time of uh, coronavirus um, self-isolation. How was that going for you?
1: Um, You know, it's been, it's been weird because I've been sort of self, isolating for about six months I don't really have an office to go to anyway um and so I've just kind of been here it's an adjustment my roommates are home more often and that's very odd I'm used to having this whole house to myself Mm -hmm. my roommates have jobs um and uh so it's I've gotten a little stir crazy I've, I've never really wanted to go out in a big crowd more than I do right now because I can't I think um the hardest thing, though, was like I had I had my heart set on like okay, this is going to be a great week. I'm going to watch the the tournaments, um, you know, all the the conference basketball tournaments this week, and then you know March Madness starts next week, and this is going to be an awesome time to not have a job. And then they <laughs> literally all sports.
0: Yeah, all the sports are just done right now. It's crazy. There
1: were no sports for the foreseeable future, and so I really kind of don't know what to do with myself at, at this point. I had just started a newsletter that was going to talk mostly about college sports like I just only because I wanted to you know write more and I, I had the time and so I did exactly uh two newsletters before they canceled all of sports oh, good. so now I really don't know what I'm going to talk about because there are no college sports I guess there's always something to talk about but um it, it might just be a lot of pictures of my dog for a while
0: <laughs> so also I um on your Twitter I've noticed that um you've had an odd phenomena of on going on a lot of first dates with dudes wearing sweatpants
1: Yeah, uh, very casual out here, I guess. Um, (laughs) I don't, you know, and it's so funny because everyone reacts like it's the worst thing in the world you could do. Um, And it's usually not that big of a deal. These are always just casual getting drinks and they're always, I don't know how exactly to explain to someone like the difference between you're sitting around the house sweatpants and you're like $100 Nike tech Fleece joggers. Uh-huh. Um, but there is a difference, you know, one is more fitted. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's more the like equivalent of like a woman wearing leggings versus like a woman wearing sweatpants, I guess. Right. Um, if that makes any sense, but it does seem to be like what I am just bringing in. I don't know if I'm not being selective enough or if I have a type or what, but like most of them will, you know, mention before the date, oh yeah, I'm just going to wear sweatpants. I, th- I think we've been three different guys now have worn sweatpants on a first date with me.
0: Uh, you got some a bit of a fetish I think
1: I you know, I don't know and I don't know this when I when I pick them you know like I swipe right and I don't know anything about what they're gonna wear until like <laughs> that day and they all I guess fortunately I'm wondering if there might be a few that did that and didn't tell me and so I didn't think to screenshot I didn't think to tweet about it um, uh-huh. I might have to go back through my records and find out if maybe there are more Um, but it's a weird phenomenon that just, maybe it's the weather. I don't know that, um, guys who think it's cool to wear sweatpants to a first date really want to go out with me and guys who wear jeans, I guess I'm not hearing from them. So I don't know. Maybe it's me.
0: (laughs) So I have, um, uh, I, at the end of every, um, interview that we do, I ask, I ask somebody to, to give uh, some advice to college reporters or people trying to get into business. Um, So uh, what would be the advice that you would give to somebody like yourself, let's say, who's young, that's getting ready to graduate from college or is thinking about making a jump into the industry?
1: My first piece of advice is don't do that. Do literally anything else. Um, But nobody who's interested in getting into uh, media and journalism, especially sports journalism, is going to listen to that. So my second piece of advice is you're going to have to fight for it. Um, you know, you have to wake up every single day ready to fight for the jobs that you want, the life that you want, the coverage that you want. Um, and, and to not let people tell you no and to not let people drown you out, because that's the only way you're going to get where you want to go.
0: And what would be the advice of someone who's been doing a little bit of um, self-isolation? What, what advice would you give to everybody else who's suddenly having to deal with this?
1: Uh, you know, I, I would remind everyone that you are allowed to go for a walk. I read that somewhere. Like, definitely go for a walk. You're allowed to go outside, um, and just, like, stay away from people, so absolutely go for a walk every day or you'll go crazy. Um, and also, uh, there's a lot of really good stuff on Hulu, so go rewatch The O.C., highly recommend. Um, you know, you gotta just always be ready to watch more stuff and maybe get a dog. That's really helped. I have a dog, so. Um, we spend a lot of time together and it's a little less, um, creepy because I have someone to talk to, (laughs) she doesn't talk back, but it's, it's somebody I can have a halfway conversation with. Um, and I guess my other advice is like, call your friends, FaceTime, your friends. Um, don't let the physical isolation cut you off from all of the people that, you know, want to be in your life. still.
0: all right, well, Sarah, thank you very much for joining us. I appreciate it. Thanks so much. Good luck with uh, finding the job.
1: Appreciate it.